Bibles to the book of Hebrews in chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and this morning we're going to read verses 23 through 28. book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and commencing to read at verse 23. Again, please give your careful attention. This is God's Word. Hebrews 9 at verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God abides forever. If I were to ask you this morning what you think was the pivotal moment in human history, the turning point in all of mankind's existence, I wonder what your answer might be. Some might say, well, it's the development of democracy in ancient Athens and the great influence that was politically on so many societies. That's the pivotal moment in human history. Others might say, well, it is the signing of Magna Carta and the influence that that had on the structure and organization of many societies, countries, states, nations. Perhaps others might say, well, it was Gutenberg's invention of the printing press. And we often think about that, don't we, to the great benefit of the church when the Scriptures were able to be printed and distributed much more widely than ever before when prior to that they all had to be hand-copied. Perhaps the inventing of the printing press is a pivotal point in human history. We could go on and on. Perhaps others would say perhaps the beginning of the Enlightenment movement and all of those things. And you may have other suggestions. In his book, The City of God, Church Father Augustine noted that there is one event in history that is pivotal above all others. That event is unrepeatable by its very nature. That event, just in case you were wondering what it is, is the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of sin. And then from that observation, Augustine went on to develop what we might call a Christian view of all of history. He said that history, therefore, has a start. It has a central turning point, 
and it has a very definite conclusion. And so according to Augustine, the pivotal point of history was the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, upon which everything turns. That helps us to understand what the author to the Hebrews is saying as we come to this section in Hebrews chapter 9, where the author here focuses on the culminating event of Christ's whole work, His return into heaven after having offered His own blood for the sin of His people. Now, Lord willing, we're going to spend two Sunday mornings on this particular section in the book of Hebrews. And so, this morning, we are making a beginning, and we are going to do so by considering three things. First of all, a heavenly ascension. Secondly, outlined implications. And then thirdly, history's turning point. So, a heavenly ascension, outlined implications, and history's turning point. So, first of all then, a heavenly ascension in verses 23 and 24. Christ's ascension into the glory of heaven above is connected, it is linked to His life, His death on the cross, and His resurrection from the grave. It is all part of His one work in His first coming into this world. Jesus was born of a woman, born of Mary, in order that He might be a fitting representative for man. He was made perfect under the law, so that He would have an accomplished righteousness to offer to God in satisfaction of the law's demands, and then to give to those whom He represented. Now, both of these truths have frequently been emphasized already in the book of Hebrews, and we've seen them a number of times. If you want to turn back and just remind yourself, Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18, Hebrews 5, verse 9, Hebrews 7, verse 28. Having lived the perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus then went to the cross and died the death of the cross to bear the sins of His people. He was then buried, according to the great words of the Apostles' Creed. He was then raised from the dead by the Father in acceptance of His sacrifice. And finally, He ascended into heaven to reign forever as priest and king, and whence He sends the Holy Spirit for the great salvation of His people. And so, all of this forms one integrated work of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of His people, but it's centered on His work on the cross. And so, as we come to this overall section, verses 23 through 28 in Hebrews 9, we find then it is focusing on the culminating event of that integrated work. It comes to the ascension, something perhaps we don't spend as much time on as we ought to. We certainly think about our Lord's birth. We think about His life. We think about His death. We think about His resurrection. Perhaps we think somewhat about His ascension, but often not as much. And uh, that is something that we need to correct. The, sp the Scripture speaks much and eloquently to the great ascension to heaven of Jesus Christ. And so here he, the author focuses on this great culminating event of the whole work of Jesus, Christ's entry into heaven, having offered His own blood upon the cross for the sin 
of His people. Now, notice how He begins in the section in verse 23. It was necessary, the author says, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Well, what are these rites? Well, they refer to all the procedures of the earthly tabernacle that we have thought about in previous weeks, those uh, ways that God had commanded to be observed in the earthly tabernacle had been constructed under Moses under the old covenant. And we read in some detail of those in the same chapter, Hebrews 9, verses 18 through 22. But notice how the author says here in this section, these things were copies of the heavenly things. The tabernacle was a copy on earth of the heavenly sanctuary. Notice how he continues here, the author. He says, but the heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verses 23 and 24. Christ ascended to the fullness of the reality of the heavenly sanctuary of which tabernacle and temple here on earth were but copies and representations. That's why Christ took His own blood to the temple above. The blood of bulls and goats by God's appointment, sanctified, made holy. The sanctuary below. That's why He says it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrificial system of the Levitical court. But when it came to the heavenly temple, it required better blood, better sacrifices than those of Moses. Well, then that brings us in the second place to the outlined implications, again in verses 23 and 24, the outlined implications. Here the author presents what we might say, well, the so what of this? So what about the earthly sacrifices and the earthly tabernacle and Christ's one great sacrifice at Calvary and the heavenly sanctuary into which He has ascended? What, what's the implication of all of this? What do we draw from what the author says here of Christ's return into heaven as Redeemer and High Priest, having shed His own blood upon the cross? Well, two things. First of all, the need for a better sacrifice than that of bulls and goats, verse 23. That was necessary, he says. And then secondly, Christ's application of that better blood to the true things in heaven itself, in the presence of God. That's the implication of this. You needed better blood, and Christ has taken that better sacrifice, that better blood, and He has offered it in heaven itself, to which He ascended in the very presence of God, verse 24. Now, of course, all through Hebrews chapter 9, we have seen the need for a blood that is better than that of bulls and goats. This is not a new topic, a new theme that the author begins here. He mentioned it back in verse 9 of chapter 9 and in verse 14. The blood of the animal sacrifices on which the old covenant depended was symbolic, representative, uh, of the true sacrifice that would come. It follows, therefore, that in the true sanctuary of heaven, it would be the true blood of the Lord Jesus that would be necessary, that was required to be offered. 
as we've seen again and again, we see here the old covenant was what we call provisional. It was symbolic. It was a picture of, but it was not the reality itself. We have that idea of provisional things, don't we, in in our own uh, circumstances here in life. Uh, Sometimes you might get a provisional document, but it's not the final and full thing. It it represents that, but it's not the thing itself. Sometimes you can have a provisional driving license, but it's not a full license. And then uh, depending on what the qualifications are, whether you have to pass a test or something of that nature, then you uh, get the full license, the reality itself. That's the picture here. And so the old covenant was provisional, temporary, symbolic of that true reality that the author says now has come in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the actual work of redemption done by Christ is performed not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with His own blood. And that sacrifice successfully obtains salvation for all of His people. Now, what does the author mean here when he says that Christ has purified the heavenly things themselves with His better sacrifices? What does that mean? What exactly has He purified here? Well, verse 24 is the context here. It's clearly discussing Christ's entry into heaven. The author of Hebrews has stated that Israel's tabernacle was an earthly version of the heavenly reality. Now, we need to make an important clarification here. The tabernacle is an earthly representation, picture, symbolized, provisional, all those words we've used, of the heavenly reality. But that does not mean that there is a literal lampstand in heaven like there was a physical lampstand in the physical tabernacle. He does not mean by this there's a physical table with the physical twelve loaves of the showbread in heaven. It does not mean that there's a literal altar of incense like there was that physical altar on which incense was offered in the tabernacle. But again, that these things are symbolic. They represent a reality. Lampstand, table of showbread, altar of incense, symbolized features of God's relationship with man. That is the reality which then is in heaven. Same is true of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the physical tabernacle. There's not a physical Ark of the Covenant in heaven. That Ark represented man's status before God. That's its purpose, to um, be a picture of that, to represent that. And so when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies in the physical tabernacle, as he did uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as it is in the Hebrew, as uh, the Jews would call it. He encountered this physical item, this box, the Ark of the Covenant. You remember over the top of the Ark of the Covenant were the golden cherubim with their um, uh, wings arched over the top. And between those cherubim, God symbolically dwelt. His presence was manifested. And as it were, as God's presence is there over the Ark of the Covenant, He gazes down on what? Well, of course, the content. What was in the Ark? In the Ark were the tablets of stone upon which were written the law of God the summary of God's law to all people, all places, all times, the Ten Commandments. And of course, in that total picture then, is represented sinful man's great problem. Here is the holy God in the holy of holies gazing upon His holy law, 
And man, the sinner, has broken that law. He's guilty before the holy God. It tells us what our primary problem is by nature this morning, each and every one of us. Man, woman, boy, girl, whoever you are, young, old, whatever other distinction there may be between us, this is the primary problem of all by nature now. Our primary problem is not our other human relationships, though they may cause us trouble from time to time. Our great problem is not our jobs, though there may be strife in the workplace, whether it's between boss and employee, employee and boss, co-workers, whatever it may be. Our primary problem is not so much in the home, in our family relationships, though they may be under stress and strain from time to time. Our great problem is not our finances, though many of us often find ourselves complaining we don't have all the money we would like to have to do what we want to do. I think you're getting the pattern here of what our problem is not, right? And if you can add any more to that, then feel free to do that as you think about this. Our main problem, man, woman, boy, girl, is that we are lawbreakers, transgressors of God's holy law, and that we stand in judgment by nature before His holy throne and therefore are in jeopardy of eternal damnation. That is our great problem. And that's the heavenly reality that is symbolized by the earthly copy of the tabernacle, and in particular the Holy of uh, Holies and the Ark of the Covenants. That's what's symbolized. The holy God, as He gazes upon His holy law, and man as guilty lawbreaker, before God and His law. Well, as we then take all of that as the background, what then is the significance of the application of the blood of Christ which He sprinkles in the heavenly temple? Well, again, we go back to the earthly copy first of all. What was the signification, what was the significance of the application of the blood here on earth which was sprinkled by the priests on everything in the tabernacle? Well, the furnishings in that place spoke of the great privileges, the great blessings that are granted to man as he is at peace and fellowship with God. But since man became lawbreaker, sinner, transgressor. We are not worthy of those privileges. We are denied those privileges. We cannot merit those privileges. We cannot be granted those privileges. Just think about it again for a moment in the detail. We go back to the lampstand. What did the lampstand speak of? It spoke of God's revealing light. Man in sin, not worthy anymore to receive God's revelation, save that of the revelation of the wrath of God upon him as a sinner. The table of the showbread, that spoke of the intimate fellowship with the living God. But the very thought of sitting down to table with such sinners repugnant to the holy God, all of the glory of His eternal being um, would reject is averse to sin, opposed to sin. How can the holy God sit down at table fellowship with such guilty sinners? The incense altar that spoke of the privilege of access, particularly in prayer, in communion, in dialogue with the holy gods. Man again in sin is granted no such access, rather is barred from that. That's why again again the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, without the blood, apart from sacrifice, everything in the tabernacle speaks to privileges that sinners must be denied. They have no right of access to. 
What does the tabernacle speak of for guilty sinners first and foremost? It speaks first and foremost of the piercing gaze of the holy God on the tablets of His holy law in the Ark of the Covenant whilst the sinner stands before that God and that holy law condemned guilty. Now, having got all of that background, and it takes a long time, I understand that. We're speaking again, uh, we're talking a little bit about it in our Sunday school hour, about uh, sometimes today, you know, we just really want the quick answers. And um, as we come to the Scriptures, we must recognize it isn't just a case of here's two lines and then it's all clear. We must understand what is in the background, what is the uh, picture, what is the um, uh, the representations being drawn on. That is it. So, now we can see what the blood of Christ offered in the heavenly sanctuary accomplished. Because when the blood of the sacrifice is applied, the sacrifice that has borne sin in the sinner's place, that sacrifice that satisfied and exhausted and turned aside the wrath of God from sinners, then the whole situation is changed, isn't it? Again, let's work through it in terms of the representative things here. When the blood of Christ is offered in the reality of the heavenly sanctuary, God then turns to the lampstand and sees sprinkled blood, the blood of His Son. And on the basis of that, then, He shines forth His great revelation of His salvation. Offers the free gift of eternal life to sinners and full pardon for all of their sins. Why? Because the blood speaks of the way that he Himself, the Lord, has provided the triune God through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. As we thought of last week, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, but by implication, by contrast, with the shedding blood, the necessary blood of the Son of God, sins are forgiven. Same is true of the picture of the table of the showbread. On the basis of the blood shed, God receives sinners like you and me. As we repent of our sins, as we trust in Jesus Christ, the one He sent, and He feeds His people. Saved sinners, purified sinners, forgiven sinners, because the blood of the Lamb has been applied. Same is true with regard to the full and open access to God in prayer, symbolized by the altar of incense because of the blood of the Son of God. God's throne is a throne of grace for believers, not a throne from which comes the judgment and wrath of the eternal God forever and ever. For the believer, for the one for whom God sent His Son to die, substitute, the blood now having been shed and applied, God then receives that one at a throne of grace, received as blood-bought children, sons, daughters of the living God. Hebrews 9.22, I just cited it, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the author told us. But with blood, applied to every aspect of our relationship with God, as represented here by lampstand, by table of showbread, by altar of incense, by ark of the covenant, every aspect of our relationship with God, the God who dwells in the reality of the heavenly sanctuary, there are forgiveness, acceptance with God, blessing, fullness of blessing as we were thinking in our catechism question and answer this morning in Sunday school. Dwelling in the lights, fullness of life. I've come that they might have life, Jesus says, and life abundantly. That's what is pictured here. 
And so the cleansing blood provides believers with a reconciled, blessed, abundant relationship with God, both in this life and secures for them that place in heaven itself when we leave this world to go to be with Him forever and ever. That's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That for believers no longer condemned, no longer declared guilty, we are the redeemed of the Lord, fellow children of the firstborn, our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Those are the great implications of what the author says here concerning Christ, His heavenly ascension, even into the great heavenly sanctuary itself. Well, that brings us in the third place this morning to history's turning point then. History's turning point in verses 25 and 26. The author's particular focus here in these verses is to show that Christ's shedding of His blood and His appearance in heaven as Redeemer of His own is a once-for-all event, the true turning point of all history. And it's a once-for-all event, a turning point that changes everything. Verses 25 and 26. Christ's blood is sufficient to remove sin so that there's no need for that sacrifice to be repeated over and over and over again. It's done once, and it accomplishes the purpose for which it was given. Christ died to satisfy the justice of God, and that justice is now satisfied for the believer. Not partially, not mostly, not 99.99%, but just a little bit left. It's done. It was once for all. Christ died to pay the debt that was owed for the sins of His people. And that debt having been paid, God's perfect justice, we would say this reverently, but to make the point, God's justice can never come back for more. It cannot. Justice is perfectly satisfied in the penalty payment of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing to assure you this morning of the great salvation that is accomplished and applied to all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is finished. Counts are settled. The debt is paid. I might say it again reverently, but to get you the, the point across, Jesus did not come to pay the price for sin on a payment plan. You know, payment plans are right. We get into some debt and we can't afford to pay it all off, right? And uh, often the person to whom you owe the money says, well, it's better to get it back over a period of time than not get it at all. And so they might be willing to enter into some negotiation. And whatever amount you might uh, uh, owe them, they'll say, well, I'll take it in stage payments over time, so much a month and for however many years. Or sometimes um, you might be able to negotiate the total amount down and say then, well, I don't pay as much as I owe and then pay it over stage payments. That's the way of debt in this world, isn't it? God does not pay the penalty for sin in the person of His Son either by negotiating the liability down or by paying stage payments. He pays the full price and He pays it once for all. And as I've said before, I'll say again, perhaps not with the same force that I remember putting my hand down perhaps the last time I said this, but Jesus comes with His offering and He says, paid in full. Paid in full for each and every one of My people. The amount is paid 
it is never due again. That's the point. Now, by great contrast again with the picture of the earthly tabernacle, when Israel's high priest came into the sanctuary, they brought the blood of bulls and goats once a year, day of atonement. But the very repetition of that, let alone the blood being the blood of a bull or of a goat, but the very repetition of it was the sign that it was not sufficient. It was inadequate because it kept having to be offered. That's why the author to the Hebrews eventually said the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It was a provisional picture to point to that blood which would do it when it was offered once for all. The blood of Christ, the true Lamb of God, exhausts and ends all the other sacrifices of the provisional old covenant. That's why this cleansing of heaven by the blood of Christ is, as Augustine called it, the turning point of history. It's not Athenian democracy. It's not Gutenberg printing presses. It's not Magna Carta. Any other great historical moment you might care to cite. That's not it. This is what the author says here in verse 26b when he says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age. Here is the turning point of history. That expression here, once for all, he appeared at the end of the age, expresses, it marks, it's as if the author underlines for its great emphasis, it marks this as the decisive point of all human history. When God's redemptive plan comes into full focus as the climax of all of history. Yes, it was announced before, revealed, promised, but here it comes into full operative accomplishments. Before Christ went into heaven, having died on the cross, been raised from the dead, before that, there was no way for sinners to have fellowship with the Holy God. They could not pay the price themselves. Even those who lived before Christ came, they had to look forward and trust in that. You see, this is the turning point. Now, yes, the believing, professing church under the old covenant believed in the promise, and as it were, they received the benefit of that. Even as it's expressed, for instance, in the example of Abraham, he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But there still had to come a time and a place in the history of humankind when it was accomplished. And this is it, you see. This is the great turning point. Had been promised and symbolized, pictured, represented. That's what Old Testament Israel was all about, wasn't it? But when the great high priest came, Christ Himself, when our great high priest came, Christian. He entered into heaven with His own saving blood, and everything changed on the basis of that. It changed forever on the basis of that. For all those who come to God through Jesus Christ, His appearing there for the believer is, as we might call it then, the definitive act of history, the turning point of all of history. Now, this has profound implications for our Christian lives. Though truly saved and though God may have given believers the new birth, as He surely has, yet in this world we are not yet perfect, are we? We still sin. Sometimes in the Lord's sovereign goodness, mercy, wisdom, the Lord gives grace for an immediate deliverance from a particular sin when you become a Christian. And it's a remarkable thing to see where somebody is uh, freed from the enslavement to a particular sin, and God in His mercy does that seemingly instantaneously in the lives of some Christians. They 
lived a certain way, they practiced certain sins, and when the Lord saves them, it given the power to, that's broken immediately, never to seemingly struggle or stumble with that thereafter. We thank God for that when He does that. But the reality is, even if that's the case for some particular sins, it is not for all sins, for all Christians, whilst we yet live in this world. Total deliverance from all of sin's power, total escape from our sinful nature comes only at death when we leave this world. And we go to glory perfected first of all in soul, and then at the last great day for our body to be resurrected from resting in Christ in the grave and to be reunited, perfected in body and soul. Because of that reality, that's why the book of Hebrews warns believers many times, does it not? We've seen some already. We'll see some more before we come to the end of the book. That's why the author warns so strongly to Christians to say, avoid the snares of sin. Why would the author do that if every Christian was instantly delivered from every sin at the moment of their conversion? There'd be no need for such warnings, would there? Hebrews 3.13, Hebrews 12.1, superfluous, academic. It's because we still fight the good fight. We still have to battle with sin all the days of our lives as Christians, even as the Lord might progressively enable us to put off the old man and put on the new man and overcome some sins more uh, successfully, yet there are still others which we will battle to the very day that we leave this world. Now, because of that, some believers can be greatly discouraged and greatly alarmed that they still sin. Now, none of this is to say that we should not be concerned by this. The command of God to us as believers is clear, that we ought to obey God's holy law, not out of merit, but out of gratitude and thankfulness. We know what God's law is. It's revealed to us. We should seek to do it. But the reality is we will still fail. So, none of what I'm saying is here is to say that we ought to be indifferent to that. We should not care about that. But it's to deal with the aspect this morning to say sometimes Christians can be greatly alarmed that they still sin and then wonder if they are Christians at all. That's what I want to address this morning as we begin to close. That when they fall into sin, and even as we come Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as I trust you, Christian, pray day by day, the need to repent of sins, forgive again, Lord, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. In the midst of that, there can be a great alarm for some Christians. Well, then, am I really a Christian, then, if that's happening to me? There can be a nagging doubt. One commentator calls it a clawing fear, even, can grasp the Christian. He thinks again of the coming judgments, and in many ways, he's more keenly aware of that than he was prior to being converted. He knows it's true. He knows God is holy and righteous. He is that God who looks from the presence manifest above the tabernacle upon His holy law, and if a sinner is guilty before God, then wrath will come. He understands that much better than he did before he became a Christian. Over and over again, that Christian may seek forgiveness, but then he still wonders, am I truly forgiven? And then he may wonder, well then, you know, I've got to try harder. I've got to try harder to be forgiven. Look to his own resources, his own capacities of repentance. Brothers and sisters, we need to see this morning that we are not saved by our repentance. We're not saved by our faith. We're saved by Christ and repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Now, hear me clearly. Do not say, Pastor Jeff said, you don't need to repent and you don't need to believe. 
What I said is those things don't save you, and they cannot save you. And that's where Christians get themselves into trouble, where they suddenly start to believe as they think about the coming judgment, well, I've got to repent harder in my efforts, in my strength, and I've got to believe more in my strength and more efforts, as if it's a quantitative thing. We are saved by Christ repenting of our sins and believing in Him and praying the great prayer, Lord, increase our faith. You see, if we were saved by our faith, it would not be once for all, would it? Because our faith ebbs and flows in this world, sometimes greater, sometimes weaker. Once for all, the great expression here of Hebrews 9 in our text is not an expression ultimately that's used of us and what we do, but rather it is used of Christ and what He has done. He shed His blood once for all and offered that in the heavenly reality of the sanctuary above. And God accepted that, and on the basis of that, then we are granted the great gifts of repentance and faith. We turn from sin, and it is an ongoing, progressive thing of all of our days of our lives. Our believing is a progressive, increasing believing we trust as the Lord helps us. Do you see the difference? Why is this so important? Well, in a way that um, Bob Godfrey mentioned in our Sunday school lesson, um, I want to kind of use that kind of terminology. If you're here, you'll recognize it, but just kind of spin it a slightly different way. He talked about the need for reformation in the church because the church was still full of sinners and says, why are you surprised at that? I want to apply that same sort of idea here by saying, you haven't sinned for the last time in this world unless you're about to die. I trust you are not. And the same is true for me. Did you hear me? You have not sinned for the last time in this world or unless you're about to die and neither have I. That might come as a shock to some, perhaps if you're a new Christian. Maybe somebody told you, well, as soon as you become a Christian, you don't sin anymore. It is not true. You've not expressed your last doubts. You've not shed your last tear for sin in ongoing repentance an acknowledgement of falling short. That's the reality of the Christian life. So what's going to help us in the midst of all of that? It's the good news of the gospel that Christ once for all shed His own blood to save us. What cannot be said about you and me is said of Him. His death saves you. His death that was once for all. His entry into heaven to minister for you as the great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary saves you. It upholds your weak and wavering faith. It continues to grant you repentance when we fall into sin but it's only of Him and what He has done can it be said once for all. In the end, we remind ourselves it's not our works from which we will ever derive peace, hope, assurance, joy in the Lord. Now, these are fruits that appear from our repenting and believing but they will never be the source of having peace with God. Do I feel I've repented enough? Do I feel I've believed enough? Is it, certainly not once for all, it never can be, but is it now sufficient times for all? Done it for the first year of my Christian life. Done it for the tenth year of my Christian life. 
For many of us, as we get older, we look back and we see all of those years. And what was true in principle in the first year is still true today. What saved me when I was 11 years old? Not my repentance or faith. Jesus Christ. What saves me today over 50 years later? Do I say, well, now, you know the Lord, I've got 50 years of a track record here, huh? And I know it wasn't perfect, but I've got a pretty good stack of repentance and faith here. Doesn't that count even that? And if I know anything of what the Bible tells me for my salvation, no, 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 no. What saves me today What saves me the first day, whether you've been saved for one year, five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years, seventy years, however long, it's Christ's work once for all. That's where peace is to be found. Quote that hymn a number of times in his last few works, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There are other verses. What can give me peace within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so may we turn to Him again for forgiveness of sins, for eternal life, for our great assurance in the faith. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can give me peace within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's all pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his great ascension into heaven. We thank you that he went there with better sacrifices, that sacrifice of himself, and offered that better blood, his own precious blood, in order that it might be offered, that we might be forgiven that that place that was represented here below by earthly tabernacle and furnishings might then be seen, O Lord, in all of the realities of the glory above and of the glory, O Lord, of reconciled peace between man the sinner and the holy God. Grant us the glory in these things. Grant us, O Lord, to progress in the Christian life. Deliver us from ever being complacent because of the great once-for-all sufficient payment that You have made. Grant us rather, O Lord, to be more sensitive to sin, to repent more quickly, to pray more fervently, increase our faith, and then to come to that last great day, O Lord, still resting even in this great work that You have completed. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.